This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. The Ontario budget released yesterday at 4 o'clock. The Ontario government uh, running a $6.7 billion deficit for 2018-19. Opposition members are saying the government is trying to win votes and spending money that it doesn't have. Uh, Let's bring in Jean-Paul Lam, Associate Professor of Economics, University of Waterloo, formerly an Assistant Chief uh, Economist, rather, at the Bank of Canada, and is with us now. Jean-Paul, thanks so much for taking the time. We appreciate this. You're welcome, Scott. How are you? I'm doing very well, thank you. Uh, Is this the time to be running a deficit, or should we be paying it down? Well, typically, in when the economy is doing well, as uh, the Ontario economy has been doing over the last couple of years, you typically don't run deficits. You sort of try to run balanced budgets or surpluses so that you can account for the uh, rainy days that's going to come at some point in time. But let's face it, they, they are facing an election in a couple of weeks, and I think uh, this is very typical for any party to do, to run a very electoral budget. Uh, Obviously, the grocery list of goodies that's come out in the last few days has been pretty impressive. Why now? Why not 15 years ago? How do you answer that question? Well, it's clear the motivation for doing this right now is, if you look at their polling numbers, they are fairly low, and they're trying to get re-elected. And one of the things they're trying to do is uh, have goodies for almost everyone in the province. And if you look at the budget uh, yesterday, There are a lot of measures, and it addresses uh, almost everyone is sort of uh, affected by these these measures. And the motivation is is essentially to get them uh, more votes and hopefully getting, for them, getting them re-elected in June. Uh, Can we afford this budget? Many have said that it's unsustainable. Well, um, we, the only way we can afford it is obviously, as they've said, going into deficit uh, for a long period of time and trying to sort of pay it down a bit later. So we know that they have uh, forecasted about $32 billion of deficit over the next five, six years. And we, according to their projections, we're not going back into balanced budget in 20, until 2024. And by then, we would have uh, a, a debt-to-GDP ratio of close to, close to 40%. So that's a lot of debt uh, on future generations. Can we afford it? Uh, obviously, probably not. I mean, at the end of the day, this is uh, going to cost us a lot of money in terms of servicing that debt. But uh, I think what, what, we, what we're sort of counting on is that the economy sort of grows a bit faster than their projections, so that the deficit in the end uh, appears smaller or smaller, if, of course, conditional on the fact that they get re-elected in June. Uh, this deficit that you're talking about that's uh, as a result of this budget, and then thinking of the Green Energy Act on how that payment was punted down and refinanced to the next generation, what, are we, what, shape, what kind of shape are we going to be in in 10 years from now? Well, it all depends on what the economy does in terms of growth. I think if the economy grows, they're projecting an economic growth of 1.8%, in the next few years. If we do get economic growth that is higher than that, then that's going to be very good news. I think there are some, obviously, a lot of dangers running uh, significant deficit as they've been projecting over the next few years. One of them is obviously the rating agencies are not going to see this favorably. I think they're going to wait until the elections uh, and see if uh, the liberals come back into power. And if they do, uh, I think the the uh, 
the rating agencies will downgrade the debt of uh, of Ontario, and that means that going forward, if we borrow, that's going to cost us a lot more. And what is you know what is very sort of uh, alarming as well? All the money that they've put aside for infrastructure spending, that's not counted in the deficit, as you know. That's counted in the debt. So if you add the hundred and I don't know, seventy million billion dollars that they've planned over the next ten years for infrastructure deficit, that tells you how much money they're spending over the next five years. That's uh, that's a lot. Uh, and and thinking uh, and again, my point earlier on with uh, refinancing the Green Energy Act is all this going to come home to roost in the next ten years? Yes, at some point in time, you will yeah. have to to pay everything down. And you will have to run budget surpluses or at least uh, put your fiscal house into order. I think what is alarming is we're running budget deficit in, at a time when the economy is doing well. And there are, there are quite a lot of uncertainties uh, going forward with NAFTA, etc. although we're hearing good news on, on, on NAFTA, but we don't know what's in the document, how it's going to play out. And the housing market as well is, is a big question mark for, for this province. Is, is this going to sort of affect the economy going forward? But if we go into a recession, then it's usually time to run a budget deficit uh, when we have recession. And we did that when we had the 2009, 2008, 2009 financial crisis when we ran huge deficit, and that was probably justified. So if we run into a, a recession in the next few years, and, and let's assume the Liberals are still in power, um, I, I wonder what size of deficit they will be running by the time uh, we, we are in, in, in a recession. And if debt-to-GDP debt ratio keeps, keeps growing and the amount of debt keeps growing, we have to, to pay this down at some point in time. And future generations are going to bear the, the whole brunt of that. Uh, interest rates have been uncharacteristically low for a decade now. Is, is Premier Wynne predict, predicting that the interest rates will stay low? I mean, again, uh, all we're hearing is that they're going up eventually. So what we did two years ago, and that was, I think, a very smart move, they refinanced their debt from short-term debt to long-term debt, taking advantage of a low interest rate at the time. So a lot of the debt that we have right now is financed over the long term, at least much longer term than it used to. So a lot of this interest rate in some ways locked in, but a lot of the debt that we have will have to be refinanced in the next couple of years. So here's a, here's a perfect storm, as you mentioned, interest rate going up, as everyone is expecting over time, and then the rating agencies downgrading Ontario's debt. So if we, if we put all these two together, and we add just a percent or a percent and a half on what we are paying right now, this is going to add substantially to the, um, to the servicing of the debt and how much we are, we are paying right now just to service that debt, which is around $10 billion right now. Uh, if you add 1% or 2% more on top of that, you can see uh, where the problem is. Um, and, you know, there were reports coming out today that the, Can- the Can- uh, Canadian economy hasn't grown as fast as others thought. I mean, again, are, are we still in relatively unstable or stable ground despite the growth that we're seeing? I think if you look at the sort of the fundamentals of the economy since 2014 when we had the, uh, the oil price shock, I think we are in a much better shape right now. But 
there are lots of clouds looming ahead, and, and NAFTA is one of them. The U.S. economy, uh, with all the uncertainty going on there, that's, that's another, another one because they are uh, not just for us, but for the entire country, uh, a very important trading partner. And for Ontario, we still don't know the full effect of all the measures the government introduced on the housing market and how uh, falling prices, falling housing prices, how that it's going to affect uh, the Ontario the Ontario economy going forward. So we are in a period where there's where there are quite a lot of uncertainty and. And usually when you have uncertainty going forward, you try to plan ahead and not uh, spend your way out of it. Uh, since you brought off, uh, brought up NAFTA, I mean, this has certainly been a, a tumultuous discussion from, from the beginning. Uh, and then steel tariffs brought into the mix to start to use leverage. Then we hear tariffs on, on various parts of the world. Uh, no exemptions. Then we do get exemptions. Uh, at, what po- at one point, we're walking away from the deal, or they were walking away from the deal, and, and, and nobody ever thought that this would happen. Now, all of a sudden, we hear the U.S. say, hey, things are looking pretty good right now. And it's Canada that's saying, well, slow down a bit. I mean, my goodness, how do you keep up with this, Jean-Paul? Oh, it's, uh, I think the news coming from the U.S., it's, it's hard to believe um, sometimes, given you know, the track record we've coming from this administration. I think if we look at what Canada and Mexico have been saying, they haven't said anything about we are close to a deal. I think they, they sort of the expectations that we have right now is that there's quite, still quite a lot of work to be done. And, and no one knows how NAFTA is going to look like in when, when we get a deal. One thing we know, I think, is that there will be quite a lot of uncertainty until we finalize NAFTA. And the new NAFTA might look very, very different from what we have right now. And we might be on the losing end. When will this finally be put to bed? Well, I think everyone is hoping the sooner the better, but um, no one really knows. Uh, At the end of the day, you have announcements coming from the U.S. that takes everybody by surprise, like the aluminum tariffs, I think, took everyone by surprise. So there are quite still a lot of uncertainty coming from NAFTA. And if you talk to the Canadian officials, they, they still don't know when a deal will be final. Uh, getting back to the Ontario budget, uh, is this smoke and mirrors? How substantial is this? It seems like uh, it, it's been quite a list of, uh, of promises over the last few days. I think what is interesting with the budget is, uh, and I have to credit the Liberals a little bit uh, on that, I think they, they are going to force the, uh, the other two parties in revealing what they're going to do. Mm-hmm. We know that the NDP has said yesterday that the budget doesn't go far enough, so we expect more spending from them. And it's, it's hard to see how much more spending they're going to do compared to what we've seen yesterday. But I think the, the onus is going to fall uh, on, on the Conservatives, on Doug Ford. He, is going, he hasn't said that he's going to have a balanced budget. He didn't say that yesterday. Mm-hmm. But he hasn't said anything about where he's going to cut either. There are some measures that are very that are going to sort of strike a chord with voters in, uh, in Ontario. Uh, for example, the child care, it's, it's a substantial yeah. subsidy for young families. If mm. you think about it, it's about fifteen dollars to $20,000 for uh, per child, depending on where you live. That's very substantial. And 
whether or not Doug Ford or, or uh, Horvath is, are going to, to make changes to that, at the end of the day, are voters going to think about their own pockets or, or the, the sort of the overall global picture of, of the province? I think that's going to be interesting to see. We, it's, it's hard to put the, the budget into context when it comes to the elections because we don't have anything from from the Conservatives and the NDP. Uh, This is more of a political question, Jean-Paul, but with the Liberals slowly moving more and more and more left, cutting the NDP off at the pass, um, and with the Liberals, or lots questioning the Liberals on how they're going to pay for all of this, how can the NDP pay for it? Uh, Why haven't we heard more from them fiscally? So... Uh, in the lock in the lockout yesterday, uh, Andrea Hova said that her plan is 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 done and it's going to come up. She's going to present her plan very shortly. So we're going to have a uh, a look at how she's going to pay for all of this, and she's already hinted at how she's going to pay for this, which which basically means higher taxes for mm-hmm. higher income earners. Uh, I think that's that's very clear. And the Liberals have done that into uh, have done that to, to some extent, increasing taxes on on people earning $78,000 or more. Um, so we know how, to some extent, they're going to finance these, uh, some of these expenditure. But I think they will run budget deficits as well. I think it's, it's not a secret that the NDP might run even bigger budget deficits than the, the Liberals are projecting right now. It's interesting to see that the Liberals are in some way adopting more or less the same tactics they did last time, that is flanking the, the NDP yeah. to the left. And these, the uh, federal liberals did that as well in the last elections. So I think the NDP, in terms of how much room they have to maneuver in terms of policies, I think they're very much squeezed to the left. I think for us, what will be interesting to see is how much contrast have, uh, will the Liberals have compared to uh, the Conservatives in terms of economic program, in terms of social programs? I think this is where the stock choice is going to come from. How much of this budget is realistic, uh, considering uh, the finances in the world we're living in today? I mean, you're talking about taxes for those uh, making over $78,000 going up. How, how much of this is realistic? How much of this is promises that come the next? Mind you, a lot of them, are, you know, have have been pushed forward a couple of years and such. But uh, is this realistic? I think a lot, as you say, a lot of these promises are not going to be implemented in the next next fiscal year. Some of them are implement are going to be implemented in the next two years or three years if we get reelected. Um, my sort of take on this is it's a very pre-electoral budget, uh, and if they squeeze back into power. I think they're going to revisit some of these promises. Um, let's face it, they've broken their promise on balancing the budget in the past. Mm. So in terms of credibility, they've taken a big hit. So I wouldn't be surprised that they revisit some of the promises that, um, that they've sort of enacted in this, in this budget going forward. Jean-Paul Lam has been with us, Associate Professor of Economics, University of Waterloo, formerly an Assistant Chief Economist at the Bank of Canada. Jean-Paul, thanks so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. You're welcome, Scott. Take care. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. Facebook and Twitter, feel free to jump in and engage with The Scott Thompson Show. We'd love to have you uh, as well. Don't forget about the Scott Thompson Show page at 900CHML.com. Comparing the Easter Bunny to Kathleen Wynne. You know, when I was writing my commentary, I was like, oh, man, I don't want to talk about the budget. I don't want to talk about politics. I'm already tired of it all. 
So what about the Easter Bunny? So I went with the Easter Bunny and then ended up comparing the Easter Bunny to Premier Win. Go ahead, enjoy 900CHML.com. All right, uh, let's talk about NAFTA here. And 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 I remember Donald Trump. No, no, no. We're gonna. They're everyone's ripping us off. We're gonna put the boots to this. We're gonna spit out this deal. This, it, we're gonna scrap it if it doesn't work. And and you know Canada as well. We're just gonna keep trying. We're just gonna keep in there and digging and da 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 da. da. And the rhetoric continued. Then of course there was steel tariffs, and no one was gonna be exempt. And then all of a sudden there was exemptions. And then it was China. And oh my goodness, what, what's gonna happen? And um. And now all of a sudden it's, uh, I think we can get a deal, says the U.S. And it's Canada saying, whoa, hang on just a little bit here. One minute we're heading for NAFTA Armageddon like a flaming car over a cliff. The next time we're going through the drive-thru and ordering coffee and donuts for everybody. Uh, To help explain it all, Ian Lee is with us, Sprott School of Business, Carleton University. He is with us now. Ian, thanks for taking the time. We appreciate this. My pleasure. So where are we now? Um, this is going to sound uh, and probably upset some of your listeners, and uh, please believe me, I am not an apologist for Donald Trump. I don't agree with almost anything he says. At the same time, um, I've said over and over when you and I have talked, I think he's crazy like a fox. Um, yeah. And secondly, um, I uh, actually I believe him and not Trudeau on this one, and I'll explain why. I'll explain why. Um, he he um, he, he uh, speaks what's on his mind. <laughs> he doesn't have a filter. He Donald Trump yep. doesn't have a filter, and. <laughs> So, in a weird way, he speaks truth to power. Now, there's lots yeah. of things he says he shouldn't be saying, yeah. and we can acknowledge that right off the off the jump. But the point is, most of the stuff he says, he really believes it, and that's he's he's a charmingly uh, uh, transparent, shall we say? So, if he believes it, does that mean he's right? Well, that's a separate question. I mean, what he says about trade and mercantilism and a deficit with Canada is nonsense, but he believes it in his head. Now, on this issue. I think that the, the stumbling block that went a long way, I think two things have happened since we last talked on this, that it really changed it, for I think, for Trump. So here I am, psychoanalyzing Trump. I've never met the man, obviously. <laughs> and I certainly don't have any contacts in the Trump White House. But, I, you know, I read the American media like a hawk every day, and uh, I'm reading and not just the side that is critical of him. I read both sides. And so I read the Wall Street Journal and, you know, and the Washington Post and the New York Times, and I watch CNN and so forth. Here's where I'm going. He, uh, there has been apparently a breakthrough on the uh, domestic content yeah, for uh, vehicles, and that has been a huge sticking point for uh, Trump and the Americans, and because they think that Mexico has taken uh, advantage of uh, uh, the United States, and that that argument, by the way, resonates with the uh, the unions in Canada. You yeah. know, listen to Jerry Diaz, and he sounds awfully Trumpian uh, saying that. So it looks like there's a breakthrough there. And then secondly, let's give credit to Justin Trudeau. Uh, you know, when everyone else is out there pounding Trump every day, saying, mm. telling the world what an idiot and a moron he is, yeah. he has kept his powder dry. Yeah. He hasn't, you know, let's be, pardon my using slang English in the vernacular, he hasn't sucked up to Trump, yeah. but he hasn't gone out of his way to alienate him by standing up every day, grandstanding, and saying, you know, Trump, you're a moron and you're an idiot. And he stood by Trump, well, when I say stood by, he supported Trump on the tariffs on China. Uh, well, of course, seeking an exemption for Canada. Yeah. And I think that my sense was, watching the language of Trump coming out of his mouth, that he appreciated the fact that Canada, when everyone else around the world was hammering him on the, tr- on the tariffs on steel, 
that we were looking for a, let's call it a constructive solution. And I think that that gave us some extra political capital in the NAFTA negotiations. So what, you know, everybody uses the auto industry when we when we talk of an example of how this works flawlessly, or, or, or certainly, yeah. it, I guess maybe that's too strong a word, but certainly works well with pieces going back and forth, parts and pieces being yeah. integrated and going back and forth, put on vehicles and then sent back. So, so what's different, in, because you would have thought that that was something where we had to down, what kind of corrections could they have made there that would have benefited both? The, uh, we don't know the, the details and the nitty-gritty, but I do know what the Americans were objecting to because Wilbur Ross, that's the commerce, the 85-year-old guy, the self-made billionaire right. who's 85, he's the commerce secretary. And he wrote an op-ed in the Washington Post, which was, again, surprisingly frank. This was about two, three months ago. And I actually used it for a presentation I gave on Trump and NAFTA in Canada. And uh, he spelled it out. And one of the things that they're really upset about is that they argue that uh, companies uh, that are outside of NAFTA are coming in with parts and bits and pieces right. in the car's value chain, mm-hmm. sliding them in, and so that the cars are less and less North American, even though they're, quote, nominally North American because they're assembled in North America. Mm-hmm. If I understand Wilbur Ross, and I think I do, and he was he wanted to make sure that uh, that the cars were really made in North America. So he wanted more North American and, yes, more American content. And apparently they figured out a way to address that problem that is acceptable to the Mexicans, the Canadians, and the Americans. And as I said, the auto, remember, auto is huge. Yeah. I mean, it's huge as a percentage of GDP. It's not just huge in southern Ontario, you know, and in, in Windsor and in, and in the Toronto area and in Hamilton. I mean, as a percentage of GDP, it's really big. And I don't just mean the car companies themselves. I'm talking the entire value chain system, the service industry that services them, and the parts and all that stuff. It's really, really enormous. And the same in the States. And it employs lots and lots of people, really so-called good jobs for the blue-collar workers. And so this is not trivial. And, and so Trump has really bet the farm on, on NAFTA renegotiation are revolving around manufacturing jobs. And you look at his poll numbers, they're coming up, they're coming up, and I attribute that to his rhetoric, his speeches, his announcements on NAFTA and standing up to the Chinese, standing up to other countries, and it's paying off in the polls um, uh, for him because this message resonates with a lot of Americans. So does he rattle the cage just enough to do some good? Well, I've said over and over, he's crazy like a fox. Let's set aside, because there might be some people gnashing their teeth listening to me, saying, don't you understand, Ian, he's a racist, he's a misogynist, he's a pig. Yes, yes, yes. But he looks at things from a from a different angle than a typical yeah. politician, and that's what yeah. why America put him there. And uh, yes, and and let me set aside the comments he's made about minorities and women and so forth. I'm not yeah. advocating no. or supporting that in any way, shape, or form. I'm talking about his trade policies, his investment policies. And that's where I mean he's crazy like a fox. I don't mean he's crazy like a fox when he makes offensive comments about Mexicans or Muslims right. and so forth. I'm talking about trade and investment and NAFTA. That's where he's crazy like a fox. And I, I dare say, I'd like to see a poll. I, I dare say there's an awful lot of closet, uh, a good number of closet Trumpians mm-hmm. in Canada that are saying privately in, the, in their kitchens, yeah, 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 you go after him, Trump. Yeah, sock it to him, Trump. I really think that there are Canadians who, in the quiet of their home, 
and they wouldn't say it aloud yeah. to their friends or neighbors, but they're, they're kind of cheering him on. I'm talking where he stands up to the Chinese, sure. he stands up to the Germans. Well, and that's, again, that, that, that's, I think, the reason that he was voted in. He was voted in to exactly. rattle cages to, to uh, exactly. of, of course, uh, give, something, give people something to talk about and think about. Uh, is this, do his good ideas, though, get lost in the sauce of the rhetoric? Um, he is his own worst enemy, yeah. and uh, there's, I don't think there's any, I mean, you know, if he had not made one of those single, racist, misogynist, disgusting, sexist comments, he would probably be now as, as lauded and celebrated as Ronald Reagan was at his peak, or Margaret Thatcher. Mm. You know, tough, strong guy standing up, but not, but what he did was he really hurt himself by uh, the, all the ignorant comments he made. He picked were, a lot of fights. He did, and they yeah. were unnecessary. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so you go and call people names. What's the payoff? What are you getting out of that? And then, of course, all the firing and all the tweets in the middle of the night, that hurt him. But on the trade and investment, that's called his economics, as opposed to all the other. I think he, and that's why people are so mixed about him in the States, on the trade and the tax cut and these, sort, these, these issues, I think he's got a lot of support. And if he could just shut up yeah. and stop making those ignorant, unjustified uh, comments about women and Mexicans and, and minorities and Muslims and so forth, um, he would be far better off for his own re-election. Uh, China quoted recently as saying that, you know, that this is going to create w- uh, world turmoil, that yeah. uh, oddly enough, we have to open up and not go uh, the protectionist route, which kind of seems kind of odd them saying that. It is. It Does is. that mean that they are fearful of him? Does that mean they are concerned? Um, I just got back from two weeks in China, um, literally two nights ago, three nights ago. Uh, I teach there every year. I've been teaching in China since 1997 and in an MBA program in Shanghai. And why I'm telling you this is I was there when they had the big uh, uh, five-year convention of the Communist Party of China and where she was uh, basically made president for life. I mean, I was there in Shanghai when this was going on. And it was being recorded and reported in all the papers, which, of course, are controlled by the government. Full acknowledgement there. But I'm going to give you a slightly different take. Uh, I think uh, she is, and and, uh, this is not going to sit well, Uh, first off, I don't belong to any political party, but this won't sit well with quite a few conservatives, and for that matter, quite a few Canadians who don't trust China. Uh, And I'm not trying to, I'm not being uh, naive, you know, China is an authoritarian state, and they do things that we don't do here. They're not rule of law, and they don't have democracy, and so forth. Having said all that, I think that she, President Xi, is going to turn out to be as monumental and impactful on China as was Deng Xiaoping. And I've long believed that Deng Xiaoping was far greater for China than was Mao. Mao blew the place up, caused enormous destruction, killed literally, was responsible for the death of 40 or 50 million Chinese in the famine years in the 60s. Deng Xiaoping was the guy that opened China up in 1991-92 that's turned China into the powerhouse today. She believes, because I've read his speeches in translation, and not one, but a whole bunch, and he wants to reform everything in China, top to bottom. He, but he's not doing it because he's a Western liberal. He's doing it because I think he's realized China is stuck. It's in the so-called middle-income trap. That is, they can't rival and surpass the United States with the structures that they've got now. So he is a reformer out of strategic self-interest. And so now to answer your question on Trump, I think what happened is, first off, he he said, you know, we've got nothing to fear. We've got way more consumers uh, in China than you do in America, and they can hurt you because they can boycott your goods a lot more than you can boycott ours. At the same time, 
she is not crazy. I mean by that he's very rational, he's very prudent, he's very cautious, and he's very careful. And so I think, and even his response was not uh, radical by any means. He announced retaliatory tariffs on $3 billion, which sounds like a lot, but when you consider the two countries trade over $500 billion, uh, $3 billion is, is a drop in the bucket. So I, I think he was being very careful, very cautious, uh, keeping his powder dry, and, and then hoping that you know Trump would cool down, cooler heads would prevail. But uh, I think that we should keep our eye on Xi. He is going to transform country, the country, China. I'm not saying he's going to turn it into a democracy. I don't believe that. I'm not saying he's going to get rid of the Communist Party, because he won't. Uh, but I'm saying he is going to do things he says. I want to reform the state-owned enterprises. We've got way too many of them, and they're too inefficient. He wants mm. to get rid of our target corruption. So he's going to be very impactful. I can see him sort of like a, uh, a Gorbachev, but a more successful Gorbachev. Won't, Gorbachev won't the corruption be his biggest challenge in trying yeah. to modify that? It is, it is. Uh, the, the corruption is uh, pervasive in many, many... De- I te- I've taught in the last 30 years around the world in many developing countries, and most Canadians don't really realize this. The biggest, you know, they say, oh, what are you talking about? We're corrupt. No, we're not. We're so clean it isn't funny. Yeah. I mean, in the Scandinavian countries... So why Germany, the corruption Canada. in China? It's the only way to succeed? It's the only way to it's, make your money work? It's the grease that yeah. makes the system work. Yeah. Because in a democracy, that's the safety valve, and that's how you get rid of people. You know, someone acts improperly, you chuck them out at the next election. They don't have that mechanism. So if you want to get something done, yeah. you bribe people. And yeah. it is... I'm not advocating corruption. Uh, it's terrible, but it, it, it works. It's, it's a device In that, that system, works it works. When yeah. you have that yeah. kind of a system, yeah. and it's going to be very, very tough. So what's, to you, you've taught there many times, what's yeah. life like there for the average person? What do they think of us? I'm really glad you've asked me that. I really am, because I've wanted to have you know, this chance to talk about this, because I know Canadians are really interested. First off, there's a lot of stereotypes here about China that are just, you, we should throw them out the window. Now, I want to make a sharp distinction between urban and rural. Rural is straight out of the 15th century. I mean, yeah. there's people in China and the world that still don't have electricity or flush toilets. Okay, But they're shrinking as a percentage because every year some 15 to 20 million people move permanently from the rural into the cities. In the cities, and remember, Shanghai is 25 million people. That's two-thirds of all of Canada in one city. One city. That's incredible. Okay. Chongqing has 40 million people. That's bigger than Canada. One city. One city. Hmm. And, and in the cities, the, the, the young people who I key on, because I'm a professor and I have young people in my class, and they're the future of any country, the young people are remarkably sophisticated. They've all got their gadgets, just like our young people here. They're on their little iPhones and their, and their, their various uh, digital gadgets, like nonstop. I'm not kidding you. Yeah. I, mean, I was at a restaurant the last day, and I looked around the restaurant. All the young people, they're there with their parents or their boyfriend or their girlfriend or whatever, and they're all looking down, and they're all doing with the, you know, the one yeah. finger tap, 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 tap on their iPhones. I mean, it's quite funny. And, and they're, they dress, they're very sophisticated. All the brands are there, the French yeah. brands, the German brands. And How so, do they balance capitalism and communism? Well, they don't. They don't. The, uh, what's, what's ended up, what they have is... Um, uh, the communist system is the higher, the political system. Right. So they don't have elections. They have this authoritarian system called communism. But it's not communism in economics terms. They have private property now. In fact, 
all the young people there talk about is if you don't own a condo, a home, how can I get one? Yeah. And uh, just that's that, that's what consumes them is uh, you know buying the latest gadgets, getting the latest clothes. I mean, the, the young people are so unbelievably capitalistic. It's not funny. The only remnant of the old communist system is that it's the authority structure that produces the leadership and the and the bureaucrats. And, so is and it so just forth. a matter of time before you see major change there? Well, I think she is, and this is where I've been criticized by some friends. They say, oh, you're just being sucked in by them. I said, no, I'm not, because I'm telling you, they're going to be an authoritarian country for uh, the rest of my life, and I'm sure well beyond that. And and so they're not going to be turning into a liberal, democratic country like Canada. It's not going to happen, and anyone who thinks it's going to happen, just forget it. It's not going to happen in the, for the foreseeable future. But they are transforming on, they, they are partially capitalistic. I say that because one-third of all the corporations are still uh, state-owned. And state-owned enterprise, I guess I'm revealing my own ideological bias, but state-owned enterprises, well, we call them crown corporations in Canada, Ontario Hydro, they're just not as effective or efficient as private-for-profit companies because private-for-profit companies, if they don't make a good widget or a good product, they'll go bankrupt. And by the way, private companies do go bankrupt in China, Mm. whereas the state-owned companies, you know what they do when they have a big loss? They go to the government and say, give me more money. (laughs) So So they're they're a big drag on the Chinese economy. They know that, but these state-owned companies, because they employ millions and millions of Chinese people, so they have a lot of political clout for that reason. How easy is it for young people to, um, uh, to, to get ahead? How easy is it for them to get out if they want to? It's not difficult. In fact, I was at one night at supper, and, uh, and there were eight young uh, millennials, uh, men and women, and uh, four of them had just come back abroad, living abroad for five years. I said, my goodness. I mean, one was in England and did her undergrad and her master's. Another was in Melbourne, Australia. Now, they obviously, to me, came from the children, the parents of the upper middle class. Because right. there are classes there, just like in Canada. And so these are the sons and daughters of more prosperous uh, people. And they can go out. In fact, the Chinese government encourages people to go abroad to the West to get degrees. I mean, in my own, very quickly, Scott, in my own classes at Carleton, for the last, oh my goodness, 20 years, 20%, I'm in the business school, of course, only. I'm only teaching in, in the BCom, the Bachelor of Commerce. 20% of my students, every class, every year, are Chinese. Hmm. Now, some of them are, half of them are Canadian Chinese, yeah. born and raised in Canada, and the other half are Chinese students on a, Chinese, on a student visa coming to Canada. But they're encouraged to go abroad, so there aren't, the only thing is you can't do over there, and I've picked this up over and over, you dare not, ought not, to criticize the government in the public. Right. Because that really calls into question their legitimacy, and they really don't like that. You can criticize, go out to lunch, and be there with 10 people, and criticize the government all you want, as long as you're not doing it on any kind of media, social media, mm. print media, television media, and then that's where they come in and they step on it. But there's actual remarkable freedom. There aren't police on every corner and spies on every corner. And, and they're wall walking around, and they're shopping, and there's shopping centers everywhere, and, and, and the prosperity has come up in the cities really phenomenally in the last 20 years. It is very remarkable. The wealth, in fact, in Shanghai, the price, and I'm always converting all the prices wherever I'm going, whether mm. it's getting my laundry done or going and getting a beer in a restaurant, I'm converting it back to Canadian. And I have come to the conclusion after the last two trips, a year ago, March, and now, that the price structure there is essentially 
on average, about the same as in Canada. Hmm. I'm not talking the real estate. Let's leave yeah. that out. I'm yeah. talking a beer in a restaurant there. You convert it back into Canadian dollars. It's the same as a beer here in a restaurant or a glass of wine or a meal or getting your laundry done at a laundry. And so, or clothing or, or iPhones or cell phones. Hmm. They're about the same price structure uh, as here when you convert back into Canadian dollars. Their wages, their incomes are lower. But uh, they're but they're growing much more quickly because their GDP is, which is their average incomes, is growing at six percent a year. So their wages are moving up very quickly. In fact, in the last five years, I used my Chinese laundry as a, to get my laundry washed. The first time I took it to a Chinese laundry, I paid something trivial like ten Canadian dollars, and then two years later, it had gone up to forty Canadian dollars. Then it went up, to, and I'm not exaggerating. <laughs> the last time, it cost me a hundred Canadian dollars for two bags of you know socks, yeah. underwear, shirts, and that sort of thing. So the, you can see the inflation is going, mm. the wages are going up all the time there uh, because, the, you know, they're growing so rapidly. Ian, i got to cut you off there. Ian Lee, okay. fascinating discussion. Sprott School of Business, Carleton University. As always, Ian, thank you for the time. Much appreciated. My pleasure. Thanks a lot. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. Lots of chatter in and amongst, in and around the steel industry, and of course, this city uh, of late, uh, especially talking about tariffs and such, which have come out of the south. Uh, now, uh, the viability of Hamilton Specialty Bar. NDP leader Andrea Horvath uh, talked to the Win Liberals during question period today, and joining us to talk about that is leader of the Ontario NDP, Andrea Horvath, and she is on the line now. Andrea, thanks for taking the time to join us today. We appreciate this. It's definitely my pleasure, Scott. So, what did you say to the Win Liberals today? in question period in regard to Hamilton Specialty Bar? Well, I mean, we've been watching uh, very closely what's been happening with Hamilton Specialty Bar, Specialty Bar really concerned uh, about uh, what seems to be a lost opportunity to try to keep that plant, uh, you know, doing the good work that it does to, uh, you know, to make specialty steel, particularly for the auto sector. Saw what the council did last night, uh, asking the premier's office to get involved uh, to try to, do, you know, make some proactive moves uh, to help, uh, you know, extend the time frame for the negotiations to uh, uh, to continue with a potential buyer. And all I heard from the economic development minister was they're going to continue to passively monitor the situation. You know, I think Hamiltonians deserve better than that. I think they desi- deserve active uh, participation by the Win Liberal government. And unfortunately, I don't see uh, that uh, that action. What can the provincial government do here? Well, I mean, I think there's many things. I mean, if the if the premier of our province reached out to the parties and said uh, and and just offered it and said, what can we do? Is there anything we can do? Uh, are we able to uh, you know to help the um, you know the existing parties or the existing negotiations to uh, uh, to come to a better conclusion that would keep that plant operating, that would keep in- ensuring that uh, not only these workers in Hamilton uh, but the pensioners uh, are able to uh, you know continue to. Benefit benefit from an operating facility. Um, I haven't seen any of that. I mean, any, any kind of overture uh, would be welcome. I mean, that's the one piece. And of course, we still have the other piece that so many Hamilton steel workers are dealing with, and that is the fact uh, that neither the Liberal government here in Ontario, uh, regardless of how many times New Democrats have urged them to do so, nor the Liberals federally have um, have made any um, changes to the CCAA rules and and having workers take the biggest hit uh, mm. in a in a you know in an insolvency is absolutely unacceptable 
Many would agree with that, that's for sure. Uh, why is this business failing, Andrea? I've heard experts say that they're just not producing the product that's in demand now. How do we answer that? Well, I mean, again, if there are things that uh, that can be done uh, to help encourage the uh, uh, the investment of new equipment and uh, uh, and new processes, the, the Liberal government provincially should be having those discussions. Well, I know that they've had those discussions with other companies around the uh, province. Uh, why not this one? So if that's the issue, uh, then certainly uh, the Southwestern Economic Development Fund that the Liberals put in place uh, perhaps could be utilized uh, to help reposition this particular facility. I haven't heard that that's... Uh, underway. And so again, uh, governments do have opportunities to work to try to save uh, well-paying jobs. Um, and it's very frustrating to watch uh, this government stand idly by while we, we, we lose a couple hundred more well-paying jobs in our community and put yet more pensioners at risk. Uh, one listener asks, and perhaps cynically, uh, would there be this much attention if it was any other business other than the steel industry? Are, are we beating a dead horse here? You know, I don't think so. I mean, I think it's shameful that we've uh, lost as, as much uh, steel making uh, and finishing as we have in our in our community. Uh, let's not forget, for many, many decades, those were the jobs that built our city. Heck, those were the jobs that built our country. Uh, and so to simply wash our hands of those jobs and say that um, that steel should no longer be part of the future of our of our great city, I, I disagree with that. Uh, in fact, I, I, I get worried that we don't have, you know, independent Canadian steelmakers left in our country anymore and that uh, all of the steelmaking is done by international companies. That, that's, that's what happens, though, of course, then. You have these decisions being made elsewhere um, that really have a negative impact on, uh, on the, the local economy and uh, on local, uh, on local uh, residents. Uh, you're talking about uh, helping them out, I guess, in order uh, to give them, buy them more time and, and, until a, uh, a sale can be arranged or a buyer found. What are the chances of a sale? Is this realistic? Well, I mean, I think if it uh, if it wasn't realistic, there there wouldn't have been the efforts that have been made already. Hmm. Uh, and so I think you know what we need to do is uh, is be you know kind of thoughtful about what we are giving up by not continuing uh, to to try to save this plant. And um, and I mean, I guess for me, it's it's uh, it's important to leave uh, no stone unturned. And and by the provincial government not having uh, gotten involved, uh, I think that's a stone that should be uh, unturned. You know what I mean? That should be uh, overturned, and we should start getting the provincial government involved in uh, in every possible way uh, to try to make this. Uh, make this plant viable. Uh, they said they're going to monitor it. Obviously, Hamilton specialty, uh, specialty Bar in, in a very uh, precarious scenario right now. Uh, when do you expect to hear from them with any sort of movement? Do you? Uh, well, I'm, I'm, I'm hopeful, although I have to say I was disappointed by uh, the comments from the Economic Development Minister. The Premier was not uh, in question period today, uh, and so I haven't heard from her yet. Uh, but the Economic Development Minister simply washed his hands of it and said that, uh, you know, monitoring is all they're prepared to do. Uh, that's not good enough for mm. Hamiltonians. That's not good enough for these workers. All right, Andrea, I can't let you go without giving uh, your thoughts on the budget yesterday. And how do you feel? It seems like they're stealing a lot of your stuff. Well, you know what, Scott, this, uh, this budget, um, some people are calling it left. I would say that what it is is a budget that left a lot of people out. Hmm. You know, it left out half of Ontarians in terms of prescription drugs. It left out a dental plan. I mean, they say there's one in there. So there was a lot of hype uh, about what might be in this budget. But when you read the details, it really falls short of, uh, of helping families on some of their most important needs, like dental care uh, and like... Um, 
you know, like making sure people have prescription drugs. Uh, they left out uh, the the most uh, uh, important, um, you know, part of uh, of the children's needs when it comes to childcare or families' needs when it comes to childcare by saying to women, um, when your child's two and a half, we'll start helping you with childcare cost, but everyone knows that infants and toddlers are the most expensive to care for, and that's when women need that to help the most, to get back to the workforce and bring uh, the family income uh, back to the level that it was prior to the um, prior to the maternity or, or parental leave. And so, again, a lot left out, unfortunately, uh, but not a left budget. <laughs> There's definitely uh, not a left budget. <laughs> uh, quite, though, a substantial grocery list. Uh, yeah. What are the chances of them being able to pay for this? Um, can they afford it? Well, you know, that's interesting. I mean, it's a, it, this budget is absolutely a last in the last ditch pitch to try to buy votes. I mean, that's what this is all about, and I don't think anybody sees it as anything else. Um, but, but look, one of the things they didn't do uh, is they didn't look at the very wealthiest amongst us. And, and I mean, it, it's no doubt that families are suffering and that any more costs for everyday families, for middle-class families and low-income families is problematic. But the fact that we have, you know, the child ca- child poverty capital of Canada is now the city of Toronto, thanks to the Liberals, and not have the wealthiest amongst us in our province uh, pay a little bit more uh, to help, you know, reduce that growing gap. And, and it's no longer the gap between the rich and the poor. It's the gra- gap between the rich who keep getting richer and the rest of us who keep staying where we are or holding on uh, and, and in some cases sliding back. And that's just that's not healthy for society. That's not a good thing, and this budget did not address that at all. Why do you think Ontarians are tired of this government? And lots have said, and you mentioned it earlier, that they just keep veering left and left and left. Uh, what do you say to people who would say, why would we or Ontarians vote for your party when they feel that Premier Wynne has already gone in that direction and they're not happy with that direction? How do you respond to that? But, but in fact, she hasn't, and that's the problem, right? I mean, mm. she sold off Hydro One. She sold off our most uh, treasured uh, revenue-generating asset uh, to her friends um, on Bay Street. I mean, this is not something that's left. So she talks a left mm. game, but she does not operate that way. She cut back hospitals so badly, Scott, that we, of course, have hallway medicine everywhere in this province. In Hamilton, we're now asking city council to cough up for more ambulances because they, they, they can't keep up uh, with all the ambulances that are stuck waiting to offload patients um, in, the, uh, in the emergency bays because our hospitals can't uh, handle the pressure um, because they've been cut to the bone by the Liberals. I mean, they've had 15 years to make things better. 15 years, and I think that's what makes people cynical. That's why people are frustrated. Because after 15 years, anything that they promised in the budget yesterday could have been accomplished already. Andrea Horvath has been with us, leader of the Ontario NDP, talking about Hamilton Specialty Bar and yesterday's budget. Andrea, as always, thank you for the time. Much appreciated. My pleasure, Scott. Take care. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML.